Section 7 of the South American Republics, Volume 2, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Part 1, Peru. Chapter 7, The Chilean War and the Latter-day Peru. The nitrate region extends along the narrow desert coast of the Pacific for 350 miles. Peru owned the northern 150, and prior to 1866, Bolivia claimed the remainder. After the discovery of the precious mineral, the industrious and energetic Chileans crowded up the coast, while the Bolivians were shut in behind their high Andes. Chile insisted that her true boundary lay as far north as the 23rd degree, and took vigorous measures to safeguard the interests of the Chilean nitrate companies. In 1866, Bolivia reluctantly made a treaty by which the 24th degree was agreed upon as the formal boundary, although the Chilean miners were allowed to continue their operations in the productive region north of that line, and their taxes were not to be increased without their government's consent. This treaty gave rise to constant disputes, and as the nitrate, silver, and copper business of the neutral zone became more profitable, the Bolivian government pressed harder for a larger revenue. The Peruvian government had planned to secure a control of the output by the state purchase and operation of nitrate properties, and such a trust would prove ineffective unless the Bolivian government had a free hand with the Chilean companies. In 1872, Peru and Bolivia made a secret treaty of alliance. Its provisions soon became public, and Chile not unreasonably believed it to be aimed especially at her miners operating on Bolivian soil. She promptly began purchasing ironclads. It was a favorite saying of old Marshal Castilla that when Chile bought one battleship, Peru should buy two. And the Lima government was too poor to follow the good advice, and the fatal year of 1879 found her naval force inferior to that of her rival. At this juncture, the Bolivian Congress voted not to ratify the treaty negotiated with Chile four years before, and passed a law imposing heavy taxes on the nitrate business. The Chilean companies protested and resisted. Their government backed them up and sent a fleet to protect their interests. Enraged at the seizure of her ports, Bolivia declared war in March 1879. Peru could not be expected to remain quiet. Not only was she bound by the solemn agreement of the Treaty of Alliance, but she had an imperative selfish interest in preventing the disputed nitrate territory from falling into Chile's hands. She began to gather an army on the southern frontier, but she was illy prepared for war, and Chile knew it. Her offers of arbitration were promptly rejected. The Chilean government had determined to strike both allies at the same time, and presented an ultimatum demanding that Peru abrogate the secret treaty, cease warlike preparations, and remain neutral in the war with Bolivia. Failing immediate and categorical compliance, war was declared in April. What had proven true in the times of Pizarro, San Martin, and Santa Cruz was still true. The successful invasion or defense of Peru depended on the control of the Pacific. Whichever power should obtain a naval preponderance, would surely get the nitrate territory, a rainless, cropless region where an army must be sustained by supplies brought by sea, and then could attack the other at its capital. Chile had two new ironclads, the Cochrane and the Blanco, besides two good cruisers and several gunboats. 
The two Peruvian ironclads, the Huascar and the Independencia, were older, though their speed was superior. The Chileans opened the war on the ocean by blockading the Peruvian ports in the extreme south, but Miguel Grau, the able seaman and intrepid fighter who commanded the Peruvian fleet, at once attacked the Chilean cruisers which were lying off Iquique. The Huascar rammed and sank the Esmeralda, but while his other ironclad was pursuing the Covaronga, she ran upon the rocks and was lost. This was in reality a death-blow to Peru, but the gallant Grau devotedly determined to see what his single ship, rapidly manoeuvred, could do to make unsafe the embarkation of a Chilean army. For four months he terrorized the coast from Antofagasta to Valparaiso. Chile could not take a step until she had disposed of Grau and his dreaded Huascar. The blockade of Iquique was abandoned as useless. The ironclads ordered back to Valparaiso to be cleaned and repaired so that they might match the Huascar in speed. New officers were put in command, and on October the 1st the Chilean fleet set sail from Valparaiso on a systematic chase for the Peruvian ironclad. On reaching Antofagasta, it was divided into two squadrons, the Cochrane leading one and the Blanco the other, and they immediately began patrolling the coast. The Huascar, accompanied by a consort, the Union, was cruising in the neighborhood, and at daylight, on the 8th of October, the first Chilean division sighted her. Grau fled, and was gradually drawing away from his pursuers, when, to his horror, three columns of smoke appeared on the horizon directly forward. He was caught between the two Chilean squadrons. The Union had speed enough to slip by the enemy, but the Huascar was too slow. Grau's only chance was to close with the Cochrane before the Blanco could come up astern, and he went straight for the former. At half-past nine, the Huascar fired the first shot, the distance being about three thousand yards. It fell short, and only the fourth shot took effect. The Cochrane then replied, and though the practice on both sides was wild, the two ships soon came so close that the machine-guns were brought into effective play. A shot disabled the Huascar's turret, and in desperation Grau tried repeatedly to ram, but was foiled by the quick turns which the Cochrane's twin screws enabled her to make. Just half an hour after the action began, a shell struck her conning tower, blowing the heroic Peruvian into atoms. A few minutes later, the Blanco came up and added her missiles to the storm of shots which the Cochrane and the smaller consorts were pouring upon the doomed Huascar. Nevertheless, no one thought of striking. Hardly had Grau been blown to pieces than the executive officers had his head taken clean off by a shell from the Blanco, and the officer next in seniority was severely wounded. A few moments later, the lieutenant who succeeded to the command was killed, and his successor, in turn, was wounded before the end of the action. When the ship finally struck, an hour and a half after the first shot was fired, one of the juniors was in command, and sixty-four of the complement of one hundred and ninety-three officers and men lay killed or wounded on the deck. The Chileans were now in absolute control of the sea, and could land an army when and where they pleased. The Bolivian sea-coast, inhabited almost exclusively by Chilean miners, and inaccessible overland from Bolivia proper, had fallen into Chile's hands at the opening of the war, 
but Grau's success in immobilising the Chilian navy had been taken advantage of by the Peruvians to ship 9,000 troops to their own nitrate province, where they could conveniently attack the Chilians who occupied the Bolivian territory to their south, or defend their own most valuable piece of property. But although this army was in Peruvian territory, the naval victory of the Chileans isolated it almost completely. A hundred miles of rough, rainless desert, intercepted by deep ravines transverse to the coast, separated it from Tacna, where fertile valleys begin and communication with the rest of Peru becomes possible. By the end of October the Chilean army embarked at Antofagasta, 10,000 strong and well provided with cavalry and the most modern artillery. Of Iquique and Pisagua, the two principal ports of the Peruvian nitrate country, the latter, which lies 40 miles north of the former, was chosen as the less likely to be defended in force. Only a thousand men were found, who, in spite of a gallant resistance from their two small batteries and the rifle pits, were unable to prevent the landing of the Chileans, protected by a tremendous fire from the fleet. Driven from the town, the Peruvians could not even hold the top of the precipitous bluff until the arrival of reinforcements from Iquique. The Chileans relentlessly pushed their advantage, and soon were in the possession of the railroad for fifty miles into the interior, and had six thousand men entrenched on a hill called San Francisco. Abundantly supplied with provisions and water, they could afford to wait, while the Allies, cut off from communications, must either attack at once or abandon the province. The Peruvian general chose the former alternative, but his troops arrived in front of San Francisco exhausted and thirsty after a twenty miles march across the dry desert. Only a small part of the army took part in the assault, and it was easily repulsed. Disheartened, the Allies fell back to the foot of the giant range, which inexorably barred their way to the east and after a few days of suffering from hunger and thirst took their way north among the barren foothills the enemy sent a detachment to harass their march but they turned on their pursuers and defeated them and reached tacna province hungry ragged half-armed and generally demoralized not only was the great nitrate province the treasury of peru irretrievably lost but every point on the coast including lima itself laid open to attack President Prado left the army at Tacna, went to Lima, and thence sailed for Europe, announcing that he was going to buy ironclads. Hardly was he on board ship when a revolution broke out in the capital, and the restless Pierola, who had headed the latest attempts at insurrection, declared himself supreme chief. The Bolivians also deposed their unsuccessful president. Peru's revolutionary government, rushed into power on a wave of wounded national pride, embodied the more-than-Spanish haughtiness of the Creole aristocracy, and refused all concessions. The Allies still had a large army at Tacna, not too demoralized to make a creditable resistance, although it was cut off from easy communication with the rest of Peru and Bolivia, and stood badly in need of arms, clothing, and ammunition. The Chilean ships blockaded Arica, the Tacna port, but the fast Union again showed her heels to the enemy's whole fleet, ran the blockade, and landed stores which put the Allied army on a fighting footing. Late in February 1880, the Chileans disembarked a fine army of 14,000 men at a seaport 60 miles north of the Allies' main position, and lost no time in occupying the interior as far as Moquegua, at the foot of the Andes.
Their first object was to cut the allied armies off from any communication with their respective countries. A small Peruvian force made an attempt to hold Torata, a point strategically important because it commanded the entrance into the Andes from Bolivia and Peru, but was unsuccessful. The allied armies were now bottled up in a little valley where provisions would surely shortly fail. The Chileans advanced south across the desert upon Tacna, and the allies took a strong defensive position on a ridge, flanked by steep ravines with a sloping glacis in front. Vastly superior in artillery, though only slightly outnumbering the allies, the Chileans thought themselves justified in assaulting the position. They opened the battle by a cannonade in which their magnificent Krupp guns did terrific execution, and under cover of the fire the infantry advanced in four columns of 2,400 men each. Approaching the trenches they were met by a storm of rifle bullets through which they charged bayonet in hand. Meanwhile the allies on the crest of the sand hill suffered terribly from the plunging artillery fire. The Bolivians, holding the weakest part of the line, bore the brunt of the attack. Once the Chileans wavered, but a supporting cavalry charge quickly drove back the advancing enemy, and after two hours of desperate fighting the sturdy Bolivian Indians gave way, their position was carried, and the allied army fled all along the line. Though the Chileans had lost over 2,000, the losses of the Allies were greater. No way of retreat lay open. They scattered in confusion, and their army virtually ceased to exist. A couple of thousand Peruvians held out in Arica for a month, deliberately devoting themselves to certain death, but the place was carried by an assault in which quarter was neither given nor asked. Peru now lay helpless at the mercy of the Chilean armies and fleet, the ports were blockaded and bombarded, while expeditions ravaged the fertile coast valleys. Nevertheless, the Peruvians would not yield. The United States offered her mediation, and plenipotentiaries met to see if terms of peace could be arranged. Chile demanded the formal cession of the nitrite territory and an indemnity. The Peruvians refused such hard terms, hoping against hope for foreign intervention. This passive obstinacy enraged the Chilean government, and after a delay of several months it was determined to capture the capital and dictate terms at Lima. Late in December 1880, a splendidly equipped army of 26,000 men landed a short distance south of Lima and marched on the city. Only a few fragments of the Peruvian regular army had survived the defeats in the south, but the population rallied en masse to resist the invaders. At Chorillos, a few miles south of Lima, the militia waited behind a hastily constructed line of defense. The assault of the Chilean regulars was irresistible. Four thousand Peruvians perished, and as many more were taken prisoners. The survivors fell back on a second line of defense, only six miles from Lima, and were there defeated in a second battle in which two thousands were killed and wounded. The Chilean losses in the two fights reached five thousand. On the following day, the mayor of Lima formally surrendered the city, and on the 17th of January, the Chilean army took possession. The helpless citizens were required to make up a contribution of a million dollars a month, the customs duties were confiscated, and the Chileans violated all the rules of civilized warfare by wantonly destroying the great and valuable public library, the best in South America. Pierola escaped to Guamanga, 
but succeeded in rallying no forces. He gave it up and went to Europe. It became necessary to organize a government which could treat for peace. The citizens of Lima, with the consent of Chile, made García Calderón provisional president. But when the discussion of terms began, the Chileans repeated their demand for the unconditional cession of the nitrate territory, and Calderón did not dare assent. The enemy sent him prisoner to Santiago, while Iglesias in the northern departments, Cáceres in the centre, and Carrillo in the south, each kept up an independent resistance with a few militia. The Chileans made no serious attempt to conquer the interior, contending themselves with pocketing the Peruvian customs revenues. This situation lasted two years and a half, until Iglesias came to the conclusion that peace could only be obtained by complete submission. Cáceres was, however, resolved upon further resistance, and, quarrelling with Iglesias, advanced into the latter's territory. He was intercepted by a Chilean expedition, and his forces destroyed. This left Iglesias a clear field. He declared himself president, and entered into negotiations with the Chileans, arranging a treaty of peace which was signed on the 20th of October, 1883. Five days later, the Peruvian flag was once more hoisted in the capital. Sporadic risings against Iglesias were easily suppressed by Chilean bayonets. Four thousand men remained to see that the treaty was ratified, and the convention finally ratified it in March. Its provisions differed little from the demands made by Chile three years before. The money indemnity was waived, and half the Guano proceeds were left to Peru's creditors. On the other hand, the provinces of Tacna and Arica were to be held by Chile for ten years, and at the end of that time a popular vote would decide who should retain them, the losing country receiving ten million dollars from the other. Better far for the interest of permanent peace had the fate of the provinces been definitely determined. Chile and Peru have never been able to agree upon the terms under which the plebiscite should be conducted, the former still retains the provinces, and the latter still agitates for their recovery. No sooner had the Chilean army left than Cáceres began a civil war to oust Iglesias. For eighteen months the fighting continued with varying fortunes, but in December 1885 Cáceres surprised Lima when undefended, Iglesias resigned, a general amnesty was proclaimed, and peace was restored to the distracted country. A junta assumed power, and in the election which followed, Cáceres was chosen president, and in the middle of 1886 he entered upon the dreary task of reorganizing Peru. The treasury was empty, the population had been decimated by a horribly destructive war during four years, the flourishing coast valleys with their cotton and sugar plantations had been laid under contribution, the mines had ceased to be worked, the guano and nitrate revenues were gone, the country was weighted down with a debt which could never be paid, and foreign creditors pressed for a settlement utterly beyond the abilities of the impoverished country. Rigid economies were enforced in all departments of the administration, but the most that could be hoped was to meet ordinary expenditure. Peru had nothing to offer towards the immense foreign debts except her railways, and the British creditors finally agreed to the Grace contract, by which she was released from all responsibility for a sum amounting to over fifty million sterling, in return for the cession of the state railways, 
the payment of £80,000 annually, and certain rights to the guano deposits, mines, and public lands. British pressure induced Chile to give up a large proportion of the guano proceeds, and in 1890 the contract was ratified and the quote-unquote Peruvian Corporation took over the vast properties conceded. Though disputes have arisen from time to time, the corporation has made some progress in extending lines to open up the mineral wealth on the plateau, and a successful beginning has been made towards the exploration of the rubber forests of the Amazon plain. It cannot be doubted that the industrial development of Peru must be greatly aided by the existence of this gigantic private enterprise, which will apply the energy and economy characteristic of individual enterprise to undertakings governmental in magnitude. Cáceres made no change in the centralized system of government by prefects, and the administrative fabric survived, substantially untouched, the horrors of the Chilean war and the fighting between rival chiefs. Liberal tendencies were shown in efforts to place the Indians on an equal political footing with the Peruvians of Spanish descent, although naturally the Creole aristocracy still dominates by reason of its intelligence. Considerable dissatisfaction was felt with Cáceres' management of finances, but in 1890 he was succeeded by his friend, Colonel Bermudez, who continued his policy. Unfortunately for the peace of the country, the latter died in 1893. His legal successor was Solar, first vice-president, but an intrigue in the cabinet prevented the latter's peaceable recognition. Cáceres' influence was dominant in the administration, and a semblance of an election recalled him to power. General Pierola, who had led two unsuccessful insurrections, those of 1874 and 1878, and who had got power in 1880 only to lose it after the fall of Lima, saw his opportunity. Solar joined forces with him, and revolt broke out against Cáceres. The latter had completely lost the popularity won as the most determined champion of the national rights against Chilean aggression. His administration was bad. The public employees were unpaid. The meagre resources of the country were wasted on his favorites. Though his troops were at first successful against Pierolas and Solar's hasty levies, the revolution recovered from each defeat until finally the insurrectionists entered Lima itself. The enemies of Cáceres within the town rose, and for two days its streets were the scene of bloody barricade fighting. Rarely does a civilized city pass through such a frightful experience as Lima on the 18th of July, 1895. There had been no time to extinguish the street lamps, and all night long the bands of revolutionists advanced, fighting by the lights which brightly illuminated the carnage, except were extinguished by rifle balls. Though his forces were gradually driven back, Cáceres stubbornly refused to resign, and at last only yielded to the urgent representations of the foreign ministers, leaving power in the hands of a junta. With his withdrawal, peace was restored, except for the resistance which his partisans kept up for a short time in Arequipa, and this peace has never since been disturbed. The junta served until an election could be held, in which Pierola was chosen president by an overwhelming and really popular majority. In 1899 he was succeeded by Romana, an engineer who had been a member of the outgoing ministry, and he, in his turn, had as successor Senor Candamo, who took his seat in 1903. 
Historically, the new president represents the old aristocratic party founded by Pardo, a party which had been pushed to one side in the financial confusion which preceded and the civil disorders which succeeded the terrible Chilean war by the more radical and the democratic elements known as Pierolistas and constitutionalists. The return to a participation in affairs of elements which include so large a proportion of the intelligence, self-respect and wealth of the nation is one of the most hopeful signs of the times. The Peruvian aristocracy has learned its lesson in the hard school of adversity, and vies with the commercial classes in sober, serious attention to industrial and governmental matters. Each division of the people seems to wish to bear its share in the financial, political, and moral regeneration of their country. Peruvian politics are conducted en famille. Economic and social questions are discussed and settled amicably among the ruling coteries, and do not, as in Europe and North America, form the basis for the organization of political parties. Though the country is steadfastly Catholic, clericalism is not, as in Ecuador, Colombia, and Bolivia, regarded as a menace by those who hold liberal views, and the provinces have never made any insistent demand for a larger share of autonomy as in Argentina and Colombia. As a rule, the elections are free and translate the popular will. Peru has long since passed the stage of pronunciamentos and military government. Since Castilla's time, the successful revolutions have been few and have always been undertaken for the maintenance of the regular constitutional order, not its overthrow, or have been inspired by national feeling when the fatherland was in danger. End of section 7